KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Mike Davis died on Tuesday. Of course, he wrote City of Quartz and Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. I was his co-author on that one. He was a friend and a frequent guest on this show. In fact, he was a guest on the first ever show of mine on KPFK a few years ago. We'll talk about his life and work and listen to part of one of his appearances here later in the show. Also, the Trump years were not the only time American democracy has been threatened. The World War I years, when Democrat Woodrow Wilson was president, were another. That's what Adam Hochschild argues. We'll speak with him about his new book, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. But first, election day is less than two weeks away. What should the Democrats' closing message be? Abortion rights, health care. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, four top progressive strategists published in The Prospect say the Democrats can win a decisive victory on November 8th if, if they have the right message. Who are these people and what is their argument about the Democrats' closing message? Well, the, the people, this began with Stan Greenberg, who has been writing strategy pieces for The Prospect for some time eminent pollster going back to Clinton's victory in 92, when the slogan was, it's the economy stupid. I raised <laughs> that for a reason. Uh, joined by Celinda Lake, uh, another prominent national uh, pollster who's hold for decades on behalf of feminist organizations and progressive causes and Democrats generally. Mike Lux, who is a, a senior political consultant for progressive and liberal causes and Democratic candidates and Patrick Gaspar, who was at one point the political director in Barack Obama's White House, then became uh, ambassador to South Africa, guy with a uh, union background, SEIU uh, background, and is now the head of the Campaign for America's Future, the think tank in Washington as well. And what is their argument? Their argument is that the Democrats need to walk on two legs, uh, abortion, yes, but also really engage with the uh, main issue uh, by every metric that we see in polls concerning the American people today, which is inflation, which is rising costs, which is the economy. And they need to contrast democratic positions on this as in the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the provision enabling Medicare to negotiate for uh, down drug prices, which Republicans opposed, uh, issues like that, the child care benefit, show that on concrete specifics of reducing the cost of living, uh, the Democrats are actually have things to say that for a long time they simply weren't saying. I think as the New York Times piece uh, that cited uh, this article uh, demonstrated, they are certainly saying it now, and some Democratic candidates have been saying it for some time, uh, that if you look at where we are on the number one issue of the day, really, uh, we have positions more in line with helping you than the Republicans do. And in particular, that uh, Republicans support tax cuts for the rich. Well, and they've also spoken, uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy and uh, uh, Republicans who are vying for to head the House Budget Committee, if they take the House, about uh, bringing down the deficit by uh, reducing uh, Social Security and Medicare, uh, generally reducing it by raising the age of eligibility for both. I would think that would be something the Democrats would like to bring up in the final two weeks of discussion uh, before the election. And uh, what signs do you see that the Democrats are listening to this, what seems to well, be very they, good they advice? they clearly are listening to this right now. If you, if you listen to uh, Nancy Pelosi on the Sunday shows, uh, if you look at individual House races around the country, particularly where Democrats are embattled, and sad to say, uh, there are a lot of House races right now in which they are embattled. The, the message seems to be uh, to be breaking through. It's something that the prospect that Stan Greenberg have been saying now for some time. Uh, and the question is, is it too little too late? Or is it, even if it's not too little, 
is it too late? So we shall see. But to the extent that the Democrats have a finishing kick, I think they finally realize that this has to be it. And I just want to go back to abortion rights for a minute. What do these these uh, strategists say about abortion rights in this campaign? Clearly, that is going to turn out um, uh, quite a number, probably more than otherwise would vote, of women voters, particularly women voters of childbearing age. But, you know, that that's pretty much already an established fact. And they point to virtually every poll that asks voters uh, what issues matter most to you, in which cost of living and inflation come in number one and abortion comes in, you know, maybe number three or number four. It's had the election been held right after the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, that might have been a, a, a different set of priorities that voters have. But the election is in two weeks. It's not in uh, early July. Yeah, so their their argument is abortion rights is the most powerful issue we have to turn out the base of voters. No right. Democrat should stop, should stop talking about abortion. But in this final stretch, our closing message also has to focus on the cost of living, inflation, and the economy. And Stan Greenberg has, since we ran this story just at the end of last week, uh, Stan Greenberg has a new poll out showing uh, that talking about those kinds of issues, inflation, cost of living, and what the Democrats actually uh, stand for on those issues is really the only way that the Democrats can make up what is now uh, a deficit of support among, uh, among relative to Republicans among American voters. Well, let's talk specifically about the Senate. Of course, Democrats need to hold on to their current 50 seats, and it would be great to get one more or maybe even two more. Uh, there's a surprising Senate race right now, a good surprise for once, uh, in Ohio, a state that Trump carried by eight points twice. Uh, the Democratic candidate, Tim Ryan, is doing really well challenging Trump's candidate, J.D. Vance. Uh, basically, Tim Ryan has tied J.D. Vance, something that history suggests would, would be impossible. Why is Tim Ryan basically tied with his Republican opponent in a state that Trump carried by eight points just two years ago? Well, he's running uh, a very similar campaign to the one run by uh, the one uh, the one and only Democrat who keeps winning statewide in Ohio. That is the state's other senator, Sherrod Brown, which is to say he is running a progressive bread and butter. I'm for you guys. I'm against the trade deals that led to the decimation of Youngstown. Uh, I'm for, uh, you know, uh, industrial policy that brings factories back. Uh, I'm for, uh, you know, more labor-friendly uh, uh, labor policies. That's who I am. And he is shunning even more, I mean, in a way in which Sherrod Brown actually didn't, but Sherrod brings a long track record, longer than Ryan, that's known to Ohio voters. Uh, he is shunning a lot of the uh, virtually every culture war so-called issue and emphasizing, uh, you know, what we might call, you know, basic New Deal economics. Another factor here, I think, is J.D. Vance is not a good candidate. J.D. Vance is not a good candidate, and he comes, you know, from the worlds of the Ivy League and finance, which uh, Ryan does not. That's a real issue. There's also just a little sub-issue I want to bring up, which is that Vance, like an increasing number of Republicans, has said he opposes uh, continued aid to Ukraine, there happens to be about a 30, 40,000 uh, number uh, of uh, Ukrainian Americans in Ohio, m most of whom usually vote Republican. They ain't voting Republican this time. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit more about the politics around Ukraine. What is this kerfuffle that's made page one about looking for a ceasefire in Ukraine? Well, kerfuffle it is. This was a statement signed by 30 members of the House Progressive Caucus that was sent to President Biden and released to the press on Monday and was withdrawn by uh, the signatories in the Progressive Caucus on Tuesday. Uh, so first of all, uh, th this was a, uh, a letter which was circulated in June. Two things have intervened since. Uh, one is that Ukraine has waged effective counteroffensives. 
And Republicans have sort of come out of the closet saying they're opposed to continuing aid to Ukraine. As recently, in particular, some remarks by Kevin McCarthy uh, just in the last week. And so the timing of this made it look like the Democrats, you know, were kind of the progressives were sort of lining up with Republicans uh, opposed to this. Now, that's not what their letter said. Their letter says we continue support for Ukraine. But we urge the administration wherever possible to try to get negotiations going with uh, with Putin and with Russia. It's not clear that the people who signed this document in June actually feel the same way now. It was there's some mystery that attends how it was released at this moment. Um, Pramaya Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus, who initiated this letter said some staff member did it without uh, any of the signatories go ahead. But uh, clearly it's, uh, it's it's something of a misstep, uh, and particularly for Jayapal, who's been really smart, has a really t- terrific record in the House of promoting progressive policies successfully uh, without really estranging um, other members of uh, the House Democratic Caucus as a whole. She was hoping to be one of the candidates who, that if leadership slots opened up in the House, uh, she could uh, contest for one. I think that's probably going to be harder now. Of course, the question, how can the Ukraine war end, is a very difficult one, a very troubling one. Of course, the Ukraine government's position is nothing will substitute for total and complete victory. And that includes, I guess, the liberation of Crimea, which has been occupied by Russia since 2014. And it is it should be a question for America whether that should be our goal, uh, given that that's going to be a much longer war, a much more difficult war, and we're not quite sure uh, what a cornered Putin might do. Right. Well, the only two parties that seem to have a clear idea of how the war should end are Russia and Ukraine. <laughs> they are diametrically opposed ideas, not surprisingly. Uh, and I did quote one, uh, uh, one uh, George Beebe, who works at the Quincy Institute, for uh, something like for smart statements, statesmanship. <laughs> it's not, not quite the name, but it's close. Responsible. Uh, yeah, responsible statesmanship, who said the administration doesn't really have a, a sense of an end game. Uh, and, you know, I, I really think it's very difficult uh, for uh, any anyone other than the two uh, combatants to have a clear sense of how an end game uh, comes about and, and how it works. And the administration's position, which with which I'm really quite sympathetic, is we don't want to enter into negotiations unless Ukraine is also sitting at the table alongside us. Yes. Because they are the affected party. We are, you know, only tangentially affected. But I think what Putin is simply waiting for is for various nations that have been supporting Ukraine materially. Uh, to weary of it and to say we can't do it. Uh, European nations obviously are bearing the brunt of uh, real supply chain uh, issues, which lead to, to significant rates of inflation. Uh, there are already a couple European governments, Hungary to begin with, which is pro-Putin. There's a new government in Italy in which uh, at least two of the three party leaders of the parties that, three parties that form the government are pro-Putin. Uh, maybe all three. Um, and so I, I think Putin is waiting for the West to be exhausted. And, and you know, this is, therefore, this is sort of an inherently fraught and uncertain and contingent uh, issue. It's, it's clear that the overwhelming majority of Americans support aid to Ukraine. The question is, if the war goes on and on and on, how long that's going to be the case? Last topic. Mike Davis died on Tuesday, friend of mine, friend of yours. I'll be talking about him a little later in the program, but I know you were his editor at the LA Weekly uh, for quite a while, and I wondered what your thoughts were about our loss of Mike Davis. Mike was an absolutely brilliant writer whose capacity to adduce uh, hitherto obscure facts was uh, you know unmatched, 
I, I'm thinking that this year has been particularly devastating in the terms of losing really significant progressive democratic socialist writers and thinkers. Uh, in this single year, we've lost Todd Gitlin, who you know emerged in the late 80s with his book about the 1960s, and who as early as the early 90s, when he wrote Twilight of Common Dreams, looked at uh, the political downside of some of identity politics. Uh, we've lost Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, who was, among other things, with Michael Harrington and co-chair of the Democratic Socialists of America. No one linked feminist ideals and socialist ideals better ever than uh, than Barbara. And, of course, her book, Nickel and Dimed, in the mid-90s, really uh, helped put economic inequality and the problem of working poverty more on, on the map. And now Mike, who was... Uh, just a polymath who looked at the underside of cities, the underside of capitalism, uh, the threat of every uh, of every kind of disaster, natural and otherwise. Sort of, in many ways, was sort of the uh, you could imagine uh, a, a, a child, the spawn of Perry Anderson and Nathaniel West. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, in Day of the Locusts, I think that was Mike, and then some all of whom were very, very active in the 60s and movement politics. Todd had been an early president of SDS. Mike was a Western states organizer for SDS and a uh, kind of his own unique brand of communist. Barbara also active in uh, organized left politics and organized feminist politics, managing to critique them both while still being hugely active. Barbara also with a background in science, Todd with a background in science, and, and Mike uh, sort of burrowing into scientific tomes with the zeal of uh, Karl Marx in the uh, British Museum. You know, they're, they're, uh, it's quite a loss to lose any one of them in a year. To lose all three of them in a year is, is, is a blow both to the American left and I would argue to civilization generally. Harold Meyerson. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Good to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Trump years are not the only time American democracy has been threatened. The World War I years, when Woodrow Wilson was president, a Democrat, they were another. That's what Adam Hochschild argues. He's an award-winning author. We've often talked about his books here. They include the classic King Leopold's Ghost. It's about Colonialism in the Congo, Spain in Our Hearts about the Spanish Civil War, and Bury the Chains about how a small group of people started the movement that ended slavery in the British Empire. We reached him today at home in Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. Well, your book is titled American Midnight. For a lot of Americans, that phrase would seem to refer to the Trump years, particularly January 6th. So let's compare and contrast the darkness of the Trump years with the period you deal with, the World War I era, the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. Of course, let's acknowledge at the outset that Wilson did not try to overturn a presidential election. He did not call for an armed mob to attack the Capitol. He won the election both times he ran 1912 to 1916. So it was not that kind of a threat to democracy. But you say Wilson went a lot farther than Trump in his treatment of opponents, his opponents on the left. We remember that Trump supporters chanted at those rallies in 2016, lock her up, referring, of course, to Hillary. What did Wilson do about his opponents? Well, he actually did lock them up on quite a large scale. Between 1917 and 1921, more than 450 Americans were imprisoned by the federal government for a year or more, and a much larger number for shorter periods, 
and an at least equal number were imprisoned by state governments for a year or more, and larger numbers for shorter periods, solely for things they wrote or said. What set the pattern for this and states passed copycat laws was the Espionage Act, which uh, Wilson pushed through weeks after the United States entered the First World War. And which Let me I just love. interrupt and say the Espionage Act rings a bell. Haven't they heard about that in the news in the last month or two? You certainly have, because uh, Donald Trump may get in trouble under it because of those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The Espionage Act is still there. It's been considerably amended. But at the time, uh, 1917, for the next few years, it was extremely stringent, basically allowed the government to put people in jail for things that they said or wrote that were deemed to be unpatriotic at this time that America was at war. And Wilson locked up a number of his opponents, the most prominent of whom was Eugene Debs, the uh, at that time four-time socialist candidate for president, who'd won 6% of the popular vote in 1912, and who was sent to jail for a very eloquent speech he gave saying that the U.S. Uh, should think twice about entering the First World War. And he was still in jail in November 1920 when he won more than 900,000 votes for president as a convict. So locking up uh, Debs in 1919 would be sort of like, what, locking up Bernie Sanders today. Is that a reasonable parallel? That's right. I think it is a reasonable parallel. And what exactly was the crime, the act that counted as a violation of the Espionage Act? It was a speech that Debs gave in a park in Canton, Ohio, which said that the people have never had a say in declaring war. They declare war and they send you to war. And Debs had just come from visiting uh, three conscientious objectors who were in the county jail uh, right across from this park. And he spoke very eloquently uh, of them. And he was immediately put on trial. The federal judge in his trial was a former law partner of the Secretary of War. So there was very little <laughs> doubt about which way this verdict was going to go. And it was at that trial that Debs made his very eloquent uh, speech, which ends, you know, while there is a working class I am of it while there is a man in prison, I am not free. And he was sentenced to 10 years. And uh, he served more than three of them. And then finally, by that time, the Red Scare had relented. Warren Harding was president. And Harding released him from jail, uh, invited him to visit in Washington on his way home from prison. And as he came out of the White House after that visit, Debs said to reporters, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the first time I've ever gotten here. <laughs> you know, Warren Harding, we are taught that uh, Warren Harding was one of our worst presidents. But what was it he said about Debs? You quote an amazing line in your book that I'd never seen before. He said, off the record, Debs was right about the war. We never should have gotten involved in it. And that was something that by 1920 or 21, a lot of people all over the world had come to, to, to feel because, of course, the First World War started first in Europe in 1914, then in, in the U.S. We joined in 1917 with an enormous burst of patriotism and everybody on both sides was convinced they were fighting for national survival and noble goals and to make the world safe for democracy and so forth. But by the time it was over, they realized the war was a catastrophe that had remade the world for the worse in every conceivable way. So we've said that Wilson exceeded Donald Trump by jailing hundreds of his opponents, including the presidential candidate of the Socialist Party, for things they said or wrote. And what about newspapers or magazines that criticized Wilson? During this time, starting uh, with the Espionage Act, which went into effect weeks after the U.S. declared war in uh, April 1917, roughly 75 newspapers and magazines were forced out of business because the Espionage Act gave the Postmaster General, who was a truly terrible man, Albert Burleson of Texas, the power to declare a publication unmailable. 
And at that time, you know, daily newspapers, the mainstream daily press, you know, was sold on street corners and distributed by newspaper carriers. They were not affected by this, but for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, and most of the country's foreign language press, it had to go through the mail. There was no other means of transmission. And, you know, Burleson, in addition to forcing 75 publications to close, banned hundreds of specific specific issues uh, of additional ones. Trump campaigned on an anti-immigrant platform promising to keep out immigrants from Mexico and to deny admission to the United States of Muslim uh, immigrants. How did Wilson compare with that? Well, when you roll back the clock a century, you see in this country, uh, there has always been really in the United States, a struggle going on between people whose ancestors got here a bit earlier and people who are coming later. And today it's you know, between people whose ancestors got here, you know, two or three generations ago, and newcomers who are, of course, more likely to be from Latin America. Uh, Back then, there was no immigration to speak of from Latin America, but there were an awful lot of new people arriving from Southern and Eastern Europe, primarily Jews, Poles, and Italians. And the people who'd been here for a couple of generations were almost entirely of Anglo-Saxon stock, like Wilson himself. And in their eyes, Jews, Poles, and Italians had not yet, so to speak, become white. So all of their anti-immigration fervor was concentrated on these newcomers from Southern and Eastern Europe. And it culminated in 1924 with the immigration bill It was passed then that essentially slammed the door on all new immigrants, uh, reduced their their inflow to tiny numbers. And that's what kept Holocaust refugees out of the United States. Deportation of undesirable immigrants had become a political issue in the 1920 election. What was the debate among the Democrats and the Republicans over deportation? Well, the interesting thing is that right up to the very last minute, to the nominating conventions, the leading Republican candidate, General Leonard Wood, a big blood and thunder general, and the leading Democratic candidate, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was Wilson's attorney general, were trying to outdo each other in their promises to deport troublemakers from the U.S. Because, you know, even though it was Palmer's Justice Department that was arresting people literally by the thousands, He was looking for people to deport, that is, you know, troublemakers, radicals of all kinds, who had not yet become American citizens. That's what gave the government the power to deport them. But but his crusade fell flat. And I think in a way, it denied both of them the nomination, Palmer as a Democrat and Wood as a Republican. What happened was this. Palmer so much believed his own alarmist warnings that he was predicting as he was running for president in early 1920, all through that spring, that on May Day of 1920, the International Workers' Holiday, there would be a nationwide communist uprising. Did that happen? No way. (laughs) All around the country, everybody prepared for it. New York City, they called in all three shifts of the police force. One (laughs) shift was on the streets. The other two were waiting in station houses. Everywhere the National Guard was put on alert, J.P. Morgan hired extra guards, they put extra security personnel at railway stations and ferry terminals, and the whole country was paused, you know, headline after headline for this uprising, and absolutely nothing happened. And that kind of took the steam out of Palmer's presidential campaign, and oddly enough, it spilled over to the Republican side, and instead of electing General Wood, which everybody thought was going to happen. They selected Warren Harding as the uh, presidential candidate for the Republicans, who ran famously on the platform of return to normalcy. Let's go back to Wilson for a minute here. 
You know, when I went to high school, I was taught that Wilson was a progressive, a reformer, that he wanted to make the world safe for democracy, that he wanted a war to end all wars. And that sounded great to me. And I wrote high papers in high school, I can remember saying, you know, he's one of our greatest presidents for this reason. Is Was this completely false? Well, you know, the funny thing about Wilson is I think he was a tremendously paradoxical, complicated man. You can't quite hate him as an all-out demagogue. There was an idealistic side to him. He was a moderate progressive when he was elected to office and in favor of you know, regulating business a little more, child labor laws, progressive income tax, things like that. But you know, he there was one way in which he was a tremendous idealist. He had this idea for the League of Nations. The longer the US was in the war, the more having a peace settlement with the League of Nations at the center of it was what he felt uh, we should be pushing for. And in actual fact, I don't think his plan for the League of Nations would have been any more effective at stopping conflict than the UN has been since 1945. But you still can't deny that it's better for countries to sit down around a table and talk than to fight. And in a way, this aspect of his character almost literally killed him because when he was in very ill health, he set off on a long speaking tour around the United States in the summer of 1919, pushing for the U.S. to sign the Versailles Treaty with the League of Nations in it. He was in bad health. Speaking in those days meant shouting, because if you were reaching 10,000 people in an auditorium or stadium or something, there were no public address systems then. And it was during that trip that he suffered the first of two almost fatal strokes. Uh, the second came a week later when he was back at the White House that really knocked him out of commission for most of the last year and a half of his presidency. So that was his idealistic side, impractical, but in some ways admirable. At the same time, he presided over the greatest assault on civil liberties in the United States since the South rolled back reconstruction after the Civil War. There's one other aspect of this in your book that we need to underline here, the idea of making the world safe for democracy. What did this mean in practice for Wilson's foreign policy, say in the Philippines or in Haiti? It meant nothing in practice because what he had in mind in saying that was basically, let's break up the old Austro-Hungarian empire, where in fact there were a lot of ethnic groups, uh, many of whose members wanted autonomy or independence. Let's carve out Poland from uh, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and, and, and Germany. But democracy certainly did not apply to American colonies uh, like the Philippines or to British colonies like Ireland at the time, Egypt, India, and war opponents like uh, Robert La Follette, senator from Wisconsin, said, hey, if we're fighting to make the world safe for democracy, why not self-determination for Ireland, for Egypt, for India? You have a new piece at thenation.com originally a Tom Dispatch, it's titled What You Don't Have and Why. And you open with a story not about Woodrow Wilson or, or Gene Debs, but about you in Denmark recently. Yeah, what happened was this. Uh, my wife and I were visiting Denmark. I had an infection that I knew would require an antibiotic. I went to the hospital the doctor took a look at my hand where the infection was, and he said, yes, you do need an antibiotic. Without getting out of his chair, he turned around, opened a cabinet behind him, gave me a bottle of pills, said, uh, take one of the, take two of these every day for 10 days and you'll be okay. And then we chatted for a moment. And then I said, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to leave now. And where do I go to pay? And he said, we have no facilities for that. <laughs> and that phrase just has echoed in my mind every time all of us living in this country, even if we're lucky enough to have good medical insurance, you know, all the back and forth with people in doctor's offices and insurance companies, is this covered, is that covered, and so forth. And the key thing is, 
alone uh, among the highly industrialized nations, we don't have comprehensive universal health care for everybody. And we should. And actually, in that article, I cite the case of Costa Rica, where they have a per capita income one-sixth of that of the United States. And Costa Ricans live, on the average, two years longer than we do, longer life wow. expectancy. Wow. Because they've got a good national health care system. Now, why don't we have a good national health care system? I think it has to do with the fact that in countries that do, it was often either installed by the socialist party in that country, such as the Labour Party in Britain, which uh, you know set up their national health service after World War II, or it was installed because more mainstream parties were trying to steal a march on the socialists, and, and that's what happened in Germany, in fact, and get some system like this into place so that the socialists couldn't do it if they came to power and claim credit for it. But... One of the things that happened in this 1917 to 21 period is that the Socialist Party was ruthlessly crushed in this country. Now, they never would have been as strong a force as they've been in many European countries, but they still were a real power in American politics. Six percent of the presidential vote in 1912, more than a thousand elected socialist officials around the country, members of state legislatures, city councils and so forth. And when this repression happened, starting in 1917, uh, socialists of all kinds were among the prime targets, not just Debs, but many other party officials as well. There were enough of them behind bars that had they all been in the same uh, prison, they could have had a nice little party convention there. <laughs> and the, the period left that party crushed. And, you know, these were the sorts of people who at that time talked about doing things like having a national health care system, having old age pensions, which finally came into effect with Social Security, but not to 25 years later. Adam Hochschild, his new book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace in Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And he wrote a related piece about the American socialism that might have been for the nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Adam, thanks for talking with us today, and thanks for this book. Well, it's always a pleasure, John. The same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Mike Davis died October 25th after a long struggle with esophageal cancer. He was 76. We were friends for a long time and co-authors of the 2020 book Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s. And, of course, he was often a guest on this podcast. Mike, of course, is best known for his 1990 book about L.A., City of Quartz. Marshall Berman reviewed it for the nation. He said it combined, quote, the radical citizen who wants to grasp the totality of his city's life and the urban gorilla aching to see the whole damn thing blow. And the whole thing did blow 18 months after the book was published when the Rodney King riots broke out in L.A. in 1992. Frightened white people rushed home, locked the doors, and turned on the TV news. But Mike was driving in the opposite direction with a friend. They parked, got out, and started talking with people in the streets about what was going on. Then he went home and wrote about it. Mike was a 60s person, but he didn't come from a liberal or left background. His father was a meat cutter and a conservative. And as a young patriot, Mike briefly joined the Devil Pups. That's the Marine Corps' version of the Boy Scouts. His life was changed by the Civil Rights Movement. In 1962, when he was 16, a black activist married to his cousin took Mike to a protest organized by CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, picketing an all-white Bank of America branch in San Diego. Soon he was volunteering at the CORE office there, he started college at Reed, but left to go to work full-time for SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. As an SDS organizer in the late 60s, Mike was part of the largest mass arrest in the history of 1960s protest. 
This was at Valley State, now called California State University, Northridge, in 1969. There, 286 people were arrested after a peaceful sit-down of 3,000 students protesting the school banning all demonstrations, rallies, and meetings. 45 years later, he said, What I remember most vividly about the arrests was the ride to jail in a police bus. The girls started singing, Hey Jude, Don't Be Afraid. I fell in love with all of them. City of Quartz, of course, was his masterpiece. Published in 1990, it opens with a description of a visit to the ruins of the socialist city of Llano del Rio, founded in 1914 in the desert north of L.A. There, on May Day 1990, Mike finds two 20-something building laborers from El Salvador camped out, hoping for work in nearby Palmdale. When I observed that they were settled in the ruins of a Ciudad Socialista, he wrote, one of them asked whether the rich people had come with planes and bombed them out. Then they asked what he thought of Los Angeles. Quote, I tried to explain that I had just written a book, dot, dot, dot. And then you turn the page to chapter one, the unforgettable sunshine and noir. After City of Quartz, Everybody Wanted Mike, Adam Schatz wrote in 1997 about how phoning Mike Davis is a good way of getting acquainted with his answering machine. Sitting on his porch on a warm evening, I understood why. The phone rang incessantly, and Davis never once rose from his chair. The calls lasted from morning to midnight. It might be the photographer Richard Avedon or the architect I.M. Pai with a request for one of Davis's legendary tours of L.A. It might be a Danish curator mounting an exhibit on the postmodern city, an organizer with the Hotel Workers Union, or a student at UCLA's Cesar Chavez Center. Mike turned down most invitations to speak. I remember his daughter, Roisin, telling him in 2014, Dad, you really should reply to that invitation from the president of Argentina. And Mike saying, if I'm not replying to the Pope, I'm not replying to her. He had been invited to the Vatican after the publication of his book, Planet of Slums. But he did accept some invitations. At UC Irvine, where we were colleagues in the history department for most of a decade, I gave a lecture in his course to cover for him the day he was away speaking at an anarchist convention in Palermo. Mike didn't like being called a prophet of doom. Yes, L.A. did explode two years after City of Quartz. Yes, the fires and floods did get more intense after Ecology of Fear. And of course, a global pandemic did follow his book, The Monster at Our Door. But when he wrote about climate change or viral pandemics, he was not offering a prophecy. He was reporting on the latest research. After COVID hit, we did several nation podcast segments about it. He told me at one point, I've been staying up late reading virology textbooks. He said he wrote about the things that scared him most. Ecology of Fear, a bestseller published in 1998, dealt with earthquakes, forest fires, floods, and century-long droughts. One chapter, The Case for Letting Malibu Burn, became a classic. That's where he argued it would be better to spend fire budgets protecting crowded inner-city neighborhoods than protecting mega-mansions built in remote hillside fire areas. That provoked its own firestorm. His critics, led by a Malibu realtor, couldn't refute his argument, so they went after his footnotes. And both the LA Times and the New York Times ran stories about the so-called controversy. But the controversy faded and the argument became stronger in 2018 when fires circled L.A. and the sky was full of smoke for weeks. L.A. Times columnist Gustavo Ariano wrote, quote, During fire season, I always think about the case for letting Malibu burn. Unlike the rest of the new left, Mike didn't reject the old left. His mentor in the 60s and 70s was the renegade Communist Party leader in Southern California, Dorothy Healy. Mike loved arguing with her. When Dorothy died in 2006, Mike wrote in The Nation that she represented, quote, the left's greatest generation, those tough-as-nails children of Ellis Island who built the CIO, fought Jim Crow in Manhattan and Alabama, and buried their friends in the Spanish earth. Their deaths, he said, were an inestimable, heart-wrenching loss. Now we feel the same about his. 
We wanted to play part of one of the podcasts Mike did with us. Here he is one week after Trump was elected in November 2016. Initially, of course, you know, we all felt that the sky fell in on us. But if you look at the election results, there's a lot less there than we might have assumed or, or worried about. I mean, the great surprise of the election, at least from looking at the, you know, the final results on a county by county or state by state level, it's not that it was a dramatic white working class shift to Trump, but rather it was his success in retaining the loyalty of Romney voters. And as many people may know, uh, his final vote uh, most places was about the same as Romney's, and the national total was about the same. And the key factor here was not so much the economic populism, but the cynical covenant that he made with religious conservatives after their hero Cruz was defeated in the primaries. So the Christian right was given a free hand to draft the party program at the platform at the convention, something of a dream platform. And then he chose one of their great popular heroes, Pence of Indiana, is his running mate. And if you read the religious right websites or statements by the key people, they make it clear that this was, this was really seen as the last stand for right to life, especially the control of the Supreme Court and a final opportunity to reverse uh, Roe versus Wade. And this may explain some of the more counterfactual results of the election. For instance, that Clinton underperformed Obama by eight points amongst uh, Latino Catholics, for example. I love that line of yours about the cargo cult of jobs uh, in the Trump campaign. Jobs falling from the sky in answer to the prayers of the believers uh, on the island. Uh, how long do you think it will take Trump voters to see that Trump is not going to bring back those good manufacturing jobs? Well, there are, of course, explosive contradictions in Trump's platform. And it's difficult to see how the so-called movement conservatives or institutional Republicans are going to vote for the kind of deficit spending that would be required for a big infrastructure program or jobs program at the same time while dramatically slashing taxes for uh, the, upper, the upper tax brackets. From the data I've seen, the defection of white working class Obama voters to Trump was mainly a decisive factor in, in a lakeshore room of counties along the southern shore of, of Lake Erie, southeasternmost county in Michigan, in Ohio, and in Erie, Pennsylvania. And this is an area that's experiencing right now, as people have read from various accounts in the paper, a new wave of job flight to Mexico or, or the American South. But in other places, other parts of the Rust Belt, whether we're talking about the Piedmont textile and furniture towns of the uh, Carolinas or the Anthracite Valley areas of Pennsylvania, the defections from the Democrats, of course, took place uh, a while ago, even a long time ago, going back to two, 2000 election. And I think the media, to some extent, has conflated these two phenomena, that is the defection of Obama blue-collar voters with the vote of blue-collar whites who'd already endorsed Republicans. Trump uh, had famously the highest unfavorability ratings of any candidate in history, but it seems like a lot of the people, or at least some of the people who viewed him unfavorably, nevertheless voted for him. What do you make of that? Well, the Edison exit polls show that about a fifth of his voters, and that's about 12 million people, reported an unfavorable attitude toward him, but voted nonetheless. So how this breaks down, I mean, many of these might have been religious conservatives uh, who had supported Cruz, but were voting, in fact, for the platform and for Pence, not for Trump. But also, I think, includes, I think there were a lot of people who just, you know, wanted to see what was inside a Pandora's box. They pushed the red button, you know, in protests against Washington and elites. I think some people literally voted for chaos out of desperation or because they saw no other way to lodge a protest. Trump's policies are nowhere as near as improvised or incoherent as they're often made out to be. To uh, an uncanny extent, 
he embraced the politics that Pat Buchanan uh, has argued for for almost 40 years, in which Breitbart has become uh, the megaphone for uh, policies as close to an American fascism as he'll ever get. But the insuperable obstacles to this are that none of the institutional Republicans in Washington are going to go along with the economic nationalism part at, at, at the end of the day. It cuts directly, of course, against the interests of their corporate sponsors. You think the real revolution in American politics this year was not Trump's? No, I don't think so at all. And I think the the emergent phenomena that's most important has been the dramatic downward mobility of college graduates, including the children of new immigrants and working class families. That's the new economic distress that has found a political expression through the Sanders campaign. And there's simply no way that Trumpism is going to unite that kind of economic discontent with the concerns of older white working class voters. Mike Davis analyzing Trump's victory one week after Election Day in November 2016. Mike died Tuesday, October 25th. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music